What's up, world? I got a question for you. What is it that makes coffee so damn good? Maybe it's that caffeine and dopamine hit you get after pounding a pot or two. Or perhaps it's that feeling of connection that you get when you sit down with another person to work on yourselves in the process of recovery. Maybe it's the fact that you can take something so bitter and turn it into something so delicious. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is Ego Ain't Your Amigo, a nice blend of Ethiopian and Guatemalan bean with a hint of citrus, dried fruit, and caramel flavor makes it a delicious blend for any time of day. Right now, you can go to brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Brainwashed Coffee, clean your being. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, everybody? I am Cameron. And I'm Willie. And you are on the other side of hell. Podcast. Well, and... You know, hopefully you're on the other side of hell figuratively as well. Yeah. What's up, big ducky? How are you, man? <laughs> I'm good. How are you, you doing this episode? Good. Last time you were a little squirrely. Yeah, I don't know that I'm much better now <laughs> than I was then, but I mean, what do you, I mean, I'm not any worse. Yeah, you're taking it one day at a time. Yeah, I'm not worse than I was then, that's for sure. I think you're doing better than you yeah. think you are. Well, thanks. Yeah, it yeah. seems to be the general thing. Yeah. I like that shirt. <laughs> thanks. I like your shirt. Oh, my God. Thanks. <laughs> We're wearing the same shirt. Yeah. Your shirt says sober AF. Sober as fuck. So uh, tell me more about that shirt. So this shirt comes from Valor Fitness, and we got it from... You know, the, the owner, the CEO, the big man behind big the man. scenes of Valor Fitness, the visionary, the legend, the man himself, Jim, who also happens to be our war story today. And we are proud to announce what? We are partners with Valor Fitness. Valor Fitness Clothing is now partners with the show. Um, we get to uh, rep their stuff. We get to... You know, kind of ride on their coattails because obviously we are uh, far uh, inferior to them. Yes, we bow down to Valor to Valor <laughs> Fitness. We're not worthy. Uh, yeah, those guys are. Jim is so great, and his clothing line is amazing. Quality stuff. Uh, such a big part of the recovery community. Anywhere you go. Uh, if you click on anybody that follows us, I mean, eventually you're going to be led to Valor Fitness or as you know, you'll find out listening to his story, you know, his nonprofit Valor Rising, which is 
such a big part, you know, so, so huge. And they're doing such great things with the homeless community and freshies coming straight out of prison and rehab, you know, mm-hmm. people that are looking for places that, that need direction, you know, cause a lot of us, you know, fortunately, you know, when we get out, you know, I know my story, when I got out of jail, when I got out of prison, I always had a parent to go back to, you know, not prison, but uh, rehab, you know, not everybody, not everybody has that. And so some people, when they get out of treatment, when they get out of jail, when they get out of prison, they have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. They have no direction. And valorizing is trying to change that for as many people as possible. So it's a, it's a great, great honor to be a part of that. And yeah. Stay tuned. You're going to see some really, really cool things from them and, and our partnership with us. And, and we're honored to, to call uh, Valor a partner. And, and uh, if you go to their website, to get any free clothing we have a promo code you can use it's uh worth the work and uh what's the website just valor fitness clothing mm-hmm. yeah or valor. valor fitness women like i think there's two yep or maybe those are his, his instagram uh but he uh he plugs all that stuff at his in his war story so yeah and uh and his war story was pretty great one of the things that uh that i really appreciated about it was i mean there was a lot of really really great stuff in it um and uh and i'm I'm so honored that he would you know share it with us but one of the things that he talked about was uh was relapse after you know like really being on fire with recovery and and being on fire with uh with with uh, sobriety and, and sort of working the steps and everything like that. And then there was, you know, a, a relapse in there. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that it was worth addressing um, because, you know, relapse is, is fairly common. And so, you know, the topic on this week's episode is returning after relapse. Returning after relapse. So, you know, let's let's talk about that, Willie. What's your, okay. what's your experience with, uh, with relapse and and returning after relapse like what is that what does that mean to you uh it's very noble for anybody that's doing it you know coming back and humbling yourself uh you know we 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 call it going out and doing more research right got to go do some more research on it uh relapse is not a prerequisite for recovery you don't have to relapse um uh but if you do relapse and you're still alive, then there's still time for you to get back. And so, um, you know, when I was 24, I went into treatment. Um, I did four months. That's where I really got introduced to uh, the 12 steps and uh, AANA. I got heavily involved with Narcotics Anonymous. Um, however, you know, I did not complete the house cleaning. I did not complete the steps as suggested. And so, um, after three years, you know, I wrote, I wrote three years on fire, walking, talking the talk, showing up to mm-hmm. meetings, having the service position, uh, working with my sponsor kind of, you know, um, I never did sponsor anybody during those three years, but, uh, I did hold service positions. I went to lots of conventions, man. I was at meetings every day doing the thing. Uh, I never finished the steps and, uh, I chose to pick up, um, you know, after three years. And, and for me, I never quit going to meetings after that, but I couldn't get together another 90 days, 30 days, 60 days. Like, I don't, I don't remember the longest period of sobriety after that relapse. And so, you know, what happened was I got out of treatment 
found a career. Mm -hmm. Sickest girl in the room found me. Yeah. <laughs> found the sickest guy in the room. Uh, we got married, um, you know, and, and as my story goes, you know, you know, uh, I never did, I never did pills till after meeting her and learning how to doctor hop. But, you know, uh, she used pretty consistently through the first year of our marriage and on our one year anniversary, I, you know, we decided to go to the bar to do some karaoke. Right. Just going to, I was just going to go hang out and not use or drink, but, uh, took, took a hit of some weed. When I took some hit of some weed, I decided to take a drink. And when I decided to take a drink, uh, I wasn't able to, uh, stop for another several years. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's so funny because like, that's, I feel like our, the the plan is never to go, to relapse and go back out for uh, an extended period. You know, right. we've heard that a couple of times, but that's not often one like, more the, good one. The case, yeah. But like, what what it usually is is like, I just want to smoke. I just want to smoke a bowl. Yeah, it's like Christmas or something. I, I just I just want to have a beer with my pizza. You know? Celebrate. But that's not. You know, that's not how, that's not where it takes us, obviously. Not us. Like, like yeah, we're not, we're not those kind of people. <laughs> right. So you talking about, you know, like you ended up smoking a bowl, you ended up, yeah. you know, then you ended up drinking and then, well, yeah, cause that's what we do. Yeah. And then I ended up being strung out on pills and eventually back on meth and, and then leading into heroin and, you know, the demise of all recovery within my life. Um, but coming back, man, coming back was a challenge. You know, uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the struggles that we find with uh, recovery and relapse is is that you know initially for me, like my hopes were very high. You know, within that three years, I had a lot of high hopes that um, that I was done. And there was periods during that that I was on fire with recovery. Mm -hmm. Like I was reading the book. I was going to meetings, you know, when I was doing step work, I, you know, I got through a, 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 a half ass four step that at the time was the best I think I could do. You know, I think at the, at the time there was a lot of stuff in it that I didn't want to put down, but there was some stuff that I was holding on to that I wasn't ever going to put down. And, um, uh, so like I was on fire with that stuff. And when I relapsed and found that I couldn't get another 30 days consistently, you know, and I, I dare say it was less than that, you know, it was active addiction from that relapse forward, using every chance that I could trying to, um, convince myself that that wasn't what I was doing, but it, but it was, yeah. you know, I was using every chance that I could. The, uh, the belief in myself that I could be sober got less and less and less. And I think that that's a common thing with, with relapse is that we lose that self, uh, that, that belief in self that yeah. it can happen for us. Right. Yeah. You know, cause here, here we were, we were, we were going to meetings, we had a service position, we we're working with a sponsor and, and, you know, I mean, insert whatever excuse or, or reason you relapse, right. I relapse. And now, all of a sudden, I believe that I'm that one that's constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself, which means I'm the one that can't get sober. Like, I'm that one that's going to die derelict uh, alone in the basement and alcoholic's death. Yeah. Know? Well, and why and why wouldn't we believe that? Because we were we were on fire. We were, you know, doing everything right. And yet here we are again. Mm -hmm. you know? Here we have found ourselves again, like, 
using or drinking or whatever after we had thought that that we were capable of staying sober. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we're going to think that that's that that's that we're not capable of that. And and in the end, like what that is, is it's it's the disease still. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah, the disease is always going to tell me that I can't do it. The disease is always right. going to be there saying, hey, man, like, forget about it. Like, this is this is me and you, me and you, pal, me and you. Like, that's that's what it is. And uh, and so, you know, one thing as you were saying that is like, yeah, I, I, and so the cycle goes, right? Like, I start condemning myself because I have relapsed. I want to feel better because I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. So I start using more and, and so the cycle begins again, yeah. right? Like I've got that guilt, I've got that shame, I've got that self-defeat, that self-condemnation and, uh, and I'm using again to not only now because that's just what I do, but now to deal with the emotions that have been brought on by the fact that I've relapsed. Yeah. And so, and so it goes and, and of course, like it's easy for me to say like in retrospect, well, yeah, I can see that that is the disease finding a back door. You know, the disease is now again, running the show, reminding me, yeah, you're worthless. This is, this is the only thing we know how to do. This is the only thing we know how to feel better. Like this is what we have to do. Um, but you know, like I can see that now in retrospect, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have enough clean time to, to really, to, to know that that's what was happening. Right. right. Like, and I think that that's often the case. One thing that you mentioned, um, as we were sort of talking about it before the show is something that, uh, that Marty had said, Marty mm-hmm. Evans, who is a friend of the show. Um, and again, also with, uh, Valor Fitness. Yeah. And, uh, and, and why don't you share that with, with everybody? Because oh, I think it's Marty. an interesting take. Okay. Yeah. So Marty, Marty talks about relapse and he said, you know, I, I've never relapsed because, you know, that, that doesn't mean that he hasn't been in and out of the rooms back and forth, you know, trying this stuff for a long time. But what he says is I never relapsed because I never fully worked the program. Once I fully surrendered and started working the program wholeheartedly, I never had to pick up again, you know, and that's kind of his take on it. And, and if I butchered that, I apologize, but that's the gist of it, you know, and, and I can relate with that because, you know, I had that three years, but I never finished the house cleaning. Right. You know, um, I thought I could get away with, with cutting corners and I thought that, uh, you know, that I could do things a little bit, it could work just a little bit differently for me. Mm, Yeah. You know, I could, I could do the exception. Yeah. Right. You know, I can, I can, I can clean my house without cleaning out that closet. That closet doesn't need to be looked in, you know, and, and if we go back a few episodes, you know, Charlie talked about those four pillars, you know, and, and I let some of those things go. You know, and uh, it, he he said, you know, if you do these four things, then he guarantees that you will not the relapse. Over, yeah, yeah, that you will you will maintain, you will gain and maintain long term sobriety, which he uh, he uh, says is five years or more, five years plus. Yeah, you know. So, and and what were those things? Um, one of them was, you know, uh, make that admittance, right? Like like. I can't remember. I, I have to go through and like really think about this, but they were good. I, the one that keeps coming to mind is you have to find a community. Community. You have to align yourself with the uh, the ideals and identities of that community. Mm-hmm. You've got to find a sponsor. Get, get a sponsor within that community, and then you've got to make those amends. 
I think those were the four pillars. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> totally figure we'll it out. Back, we'll just go back and watch sorry. that episode. Sorry, but but you know, it was easy for me to admit that I was an alcoholic, right? Like like I had that one in the bank, mm-hmm. you know, and that helped me stay sober for a little while. Like like oh yeah, well of course I'm an alcoholic, you know. Uh, it was easy to sort of turn my will in my life, you know, or it was sort of easy for me to, uh, come to believe that something greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I could look back and I could see where my life had been insane. You know, Mm -hmm. I could, I could establish that, but whatever that thing was, wasn't necessarily defined perfectly because I was trying to use a God that wasn't mine and believe in things that I just didn't believe in, you know, I could see the value in turning my will in my life over the care of a, of, a, of a higher power or God, as I understood it and not taking responsibility for my own life, but like allowing that higher power to, to just kind of take control of, of whatever's going to happen to me and whatever that thing is, it is. And then, you know, I did those three steps and, and a lot of people, you know, you hear, you hear the one, two, three steppers repeat one, two, three, right. repeat one, two, three, repeat. And it's kind of that revolving door. And then I did attempt a four step at one time, but, uh, I was unclear on my direction of it. And so, you know, I was, it, it was easy for me to list my resentments because I was still blaming the entire world. You know, I wasn't taking responsibility for anything um, like I do now, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and even you, you guys, you'd be surprised even half assing these steps can get you clean for a little while. <laughs> it's pretty sure. crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty crazy, right. you know, but um, I, I did that half assly, you know, and I really loved the environment that I was in, the people that I was around and the message that they were sharing. And I thought that eventually I would get it in due time. I didn't know that uh, I would have to like eventually work it. I thought it was something I was going to get, not something I was going to work for. Sure. And that's that's the difference now. You know, I have almost 10 years. I have over nine and a half years of, of continuous sobriety. And it's not because I was given something. It was because I worked for something. You know, well, I... I, I can't say I was given. So I was given the opportunity to work this program again. There you go. Right. Yeah. And so by working the program all the way through, I've been able to maintain long-term sobriety. Right. Um, but if I stop doing these things, then perhaps a drink might sound good. And that's one of the things that happened after those three years. Um, when, when I did finally relapse, you know, I was working more than I was going to meetings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, follow me here. What, what do we hear when we're in the rooms of AA and somebody has come back after a considerable amount of time sober and clean, and then we don't see them for a while. And then all of a sudden they're back. Mm-hmm. What is it that we hear all the time. Every time, like every, I stopped stopped. going to meetings. I stopped putting recovery first. Stop talking to my sponsor. Yeah. Stop praying. Stop praying. Stop meditating. And here they are. Yep. You know, so, and then I had to go and do some more research. Right. 
Yeah. Which I think is a soft way of saying it. Like, I think that's me personally, you saying I needed to do more research is a, is a soft way of, of letting yourself off the hook. You know, you went out and fucking got high. Right. And well, you're trying to kill yourself again. And here's the thing. It's like, how, how much, what's the appropriate amount of, of guilt and shame do we feel in that instance? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Because I think that you're absolutely <laughs> right. I'd have to like, come back, I guess. Like, it, it is important and paramount that we have a, a, a realistic interpretation of the events that unfolded. Uh-huh. Because we need that information in order to learn from it and hopefully understand why we shouldn't do this again. Mm-hmm. But like there's oftentimes it, it, it does no good. It's no good for me to condemn myself over it and yeah. over repeatedly. So yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, yeah, I did want to go get high, you know, I did want to go get high. And, and so now I am back, but I don't know is, is, you know, like, is that, that is an okay thing to say, I guess, like that is the appropriate thing to say, like. We shouldn't say that I wanted to go get more research or... I mean, we hear it. Maybe there's no wrong just or right. For, yeah, you know, for, like, just for me personally. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I think that whether we just wanted to go get high or whether we're taking it easy on ourselves or or whatever the case is, maybe that's not the case at all. Like, maybe it's just yeah a way of softening the language in general. Yeah. Um Cause we don't, we, we already feel bad enough. Like, and, and people they are like, fuck, this guy feels bad enough. And, and, uh, well, and that's, so like, I like your question. What is the appropriate amount of shame that I should feel? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's and, a good question for me in general all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too, you know, which is why I'm asking it. But, but I mean, and that's the one thing that was at least nice about coming back to the rooms of AA because dude, we, we do not want to show our face after something like that happened, you know, like for, for me personally, like I was, and, and here's the thing I realize in in retrospect is that there's definitely a strong amount of ego there. Right. Because like, first of all, and I talked about my relapse actually not too many episodes ago. Um, so you can definitely see it or hear it and I'll talk about it a little bit, but you know, I was on fire with recovery, you know, and I was, I was, uh, I felt like I was working a program. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. Sure. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I was not at all hesitant to share and, um, speak about the things that I had learned and, um, and to spit my 18 month wisdom to (laughs) other people, which which is valid. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to discredit it at all. Um, but there's, there's a part of me that, that can see it now for a little bit of ego, like, okay, like a little bit of a recovery badass here. Like I know a little bit about what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know, like sort of getting a little bit, you know, um, cocky maybe is a good word. Um, and then, you know, and then it happened. And in my case, you know, everybody who's maybe listened to the show knows that, you know, I had an incident with Adderall, which was a prescription of mine that, you know, I'd never abused before, was not my drug of choice, was not alcohol, but it was indeed a relapse, a mm-hmm. full-blown relapse for at least a day. Um, and, uh, and, 
And I didn't, I didn't want to share that with anybody. Like, you know, like I, I did the appropriate thing and I flushed it and, and I knew like, which is probably not the best thing. Like you shouldn't flush your medication down the toilet just so everybody knows it's not the, it's not the good thing to do. Um, but anyways, um, well, it's not the, it's not the proper way to dispose of it is what I'm saying. Like it's bad for the water, the environment. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. getting <laughs> a little off track. Sure. Um, but, uh, but anyways, I got rid of it is the point. And, uh, but I didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't want to address it. I didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't, I, you know, like I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Like I was really lost because, you know, here I had had like all this support around me. And, um, and all these amazing people, I was in aftercare, I was going to meetings, I was, you know, doing all this stuff. And, and yet here I had found myself. So it's this self-condemnation we had just talked about. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and it took me a considerable amount of time to really like weigh the options. Like, what am I going to do? Like, just give up all this support that I have and Mm -hmm. just never talk to these people again. Like, because that doesn't seem like a good idea. Especially just considering the fact that I've just learned that this disease has a way of sneaking in through other doors, <laughs> right. you know? So it's like, that seems like probably not the best move. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, like, I did go back. I did open up. I did talk about it. And it was fucking difficult. Yeah. It was so hard for me to say, I'm a newcomer. Yeah. You know, here I am as a newcomer. In fact, I think I shared in that, in that last time I told this story was that it took me, I think three months before I finally, you know, took a chip Yeah, because I just didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know what to count as what, like I was just really, really lost, you know? And here's the thing is like, when I found my way back to the rooms and I started participating in my own recovery again by, again, opening up and sharing about it, it became evidently clear as to like how I should think about it and what I should do about it. Yeah. And the answers were there as they always had been in those rooms waiting for me. And I did it without judgment. I did it without any sort of negative condentation from anybody. And I had a new sense of humility yeah. in that instance. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I, it's funny how we'll always condemn ourselves for things that we wouldn't condemn others for. You know, I, I can still remember, uh, hearing the first time it was just such a novel idea for me that you're an addict, you're going to want to use, that's the normal state of an addict. An alcoholic wants to drink. That's normal for an alcoholic. Like what you're doing in recovery not drinking, not using, trying to make a better way of life, that's fucking abnormal for the alcoholic. That's not what most alcoholics do. So there's going to be a struggle, and you're going to want to use. And that's okay. And it's okay to talk about it. Um, I used to think that, uh, that I would be a better recovering person if I didn't think about using. Like, if I didn't have any... Cre- I would be the best recovering person ever... <laughs> If I'd never had any cravings, right? And so I would try to convince myself that I don't, mm. that I didn't, that um, that everything is always all good. I'm working such a wonderful program that that the idea of even 
popping in my head isn't even a thing for me because I'm such a recovered person. And uh, that's a dangerous place because if I can convince myself, the, the disease will fucking use whatever it can. Right. So if I can convince myself that I don't need to talk about having cravings or urges or using dreams or, you know, memories of it or, you know, getting into that space where, you know, the, the seasons are changing and it's like, oh, it's barbecue time. And, you know, cause I have these trigger, trigger moments where I'm, I'm triggered and reminded of how fun it used to be. Right. Right. And if I can convince myself that uh, I don't need to talk about those, then the, the disease can creep in my mind and go, yeah, well, you don't need to talk about having those cravings and you don't need to talk about acting on those cravings either. Right. You yeah. Know? You can keep all that a secret because it's just me and you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just you and me. Good point, man. Uh, because there is that part that thinks that I don't have to tell anybody. Yeah. Like when I use and when I'm just thinking about it. When I'm thinking, fuck, I just feel like using today. Mm. You know, the, the urge is there. Well, don't fucking tell anyone. Yeah. Then they'll know that you're a human. Yeah, they'll know that you're imperfect. <laughs> so that's why, you know, I appreciate you so much because I, I, uh, I'll let you know often that I'm, especially with the, with the food and, mm, yeah. you know, because that's the main struggle for me now. Um, that's where the disease is really fucking taking me across the, the coals or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I don't know how that expression. They're taking you to task. Taking me to task. Raking you against raking the coals. Me, raking me across the, the coals, you know, is with. We just figured my, some shit out. <laughs> my, uh, my, my, uh, cravings to food. And, and, you know, what I'm learning now, as far as that goes is, is my opinion about them and how that affects my life, you know, because like, uh, like I, I am a great one for just fucking, well, we all are, uh, but I'm even worse. I'm, I'm the worst one about beating myself up over having messed up with the food. Like <laughs> again, like the disease will creep in and say, you're no, you, you're, you're different. Yeah. You're different. Yeah. Everybody struggles a little bit, but yeah. you really struggle. And so for you to not be doing this stuff, you're. You're, you're special. You're special. Which means you deserve something, you know? And that's... Yeah, you've earned it. <laughs> that's the way this fucking thing works on me. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. And it took me out at one time. It, it, it convinced me that having a drink would be a good idea. And I lost... Well, I don't... I can't say that I lost, but who knows where my life would be uh, had I never picked up. I know that... After the last time I got arrested and started this stint and journey of recovery, I've created a life for myself and the people around me that I'm not willing to give up over a drink. And then mm. I understand that some of the things that they were, that, that the old timers were talking about as far as like keeping it simple, keep coming back, uh, keep the plug in the jug, um, work the steps, get a sponsor, be transparent, all those things, all those cliches yeah, that they were, that they've been telling me the entire time I've been trying to, 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 to get a hold of this. Like I'm starting to understand that stuff because, uh, now that I have a life that I'm not willing to give up over a drink, um, the reality of the work that it takes to stay on this side is present, mm -hmm. right? Like I can see, I can see the amount of work that it takes and the amount of transparency and humility. Like you talked about, I have to talk about this stuff or, 
I may be coming back, raising my hand if I'm lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Saying, you know, I'm 24 hours today. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the good point is, you know, if, if, if you're lucky, like really, if we're in a position to come back, we are lucky because I, you know, I, we've all heard way too many stories about people that do not make it back, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, one that I heard recently that I'll just share very briefly because it's the most recent story I have that to me is just so unfortunate and just a total reminder of the viciousness of this disease is I was in a meeting. We had, uh, there was a kid in there. I think he was just getting um, out of a treatment program. And so he was transitioning from treatment into a 12-step program. And, uh, and he rose his, rose, he, he raised, raised his hand. Is it raised? He, he raised, raised his, his hand. hand. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Ryland. He raised his hand and, uh, and, and said, Hey, you know, like I'm getting out of treatment. I want to be sure I have a sponsor. So somebody after the meeting went over to him and said, yeah, I'll be happy to be your sponsor. Took his information. Um, and, uh, and then the next week at that very same meeting, <clears throat> I had heard that that kid went out the next day and used one last time mm-hmm. and overdosed, you yeah. know, and, uh, and he, you know, he, he didn't make it back. Yeah. And, and that is all too common a tell. So I appreciate what you said because, you know, if, if we're lucky enough to survive our relapse, you know, and I had moments in my own recovery where, I knew I had to either get my shit together and come back to a program or I had to upgrade to harder stuff, you know? And, uh, and if we're lucky enough to come back, we need to, to expect that it's going to be hard. We need to expect that there's going to be discomfort. We need to, you know, know going into it that we're doing the right things and that it's not going to be easy. It's abnormal for an alcoholic. Thank you. Yeah, it's unnatural, right? Yeah. It's not. It's not what our body is telling us to do. <laughs> yeah, it's what our hopefully our heart is telling yeah, us to a, do. That's that's spirit work. Yeah, that's soul work right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and for sure. So I just you know like I just want to emphasize like how fortunate it is that we've found ourselves in this position to make it back, and if we're able to do that, we owe it to ourselves to give it an honest shot. Yeah. Because half measures availed us nothing. And that was one thing that I, I really began to put together after my own relapse is, is, you know, like, was I working a program? Like, was I? Like, yeah, was I? I was going to meetings. But what about, like, the actual program? program? Was, yeah. I, was I doing that? You know? And, like, you know, if I'm absolutely honest with it, like, eh, not, not really. Kind of. You know, like, yeah. Like, I think I was sort of, you know, like, I'd hitched my road to... Or hitched my wagon to middle of the road AA is what I've heard said, <laughs> you know. And, uh, Where, how the fuck do you hear all these things that I've never heard? Like, you like do that I, one? Yeah, do I even go to meetings? Like, I haven't even heard. I heard that on like a YouTube speaker. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, an AA speaker. I'd hitched my wagon to middle of the road AA. Yeah. So, you know, like, it, it, it was that moment that I realized that I needed to, I needed to do, I yeah. needed to do more. Yeah. You know, like that was the bottom line. I think I've heard it on the fence recovery. Or something sure. Like that. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Right. Yeah. And the, 
Yeah. I don't know. I keep thinking about Brian now that you brought up that kid that died. Because I had a sponsee that died. Oh, right. Know, that, that's right. That we, we worked all, all 12. So I thought. Yeah. You know? And he ended up he ended up going back out and then he just couldn't make it back. And he decided to just take it to the to the bitter ends. You know? And we don't we don't die pretty pretty deaths. No. It's not nice. You know, but that ego will fucking keep us from 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 doing the work that needs to be done. It's so insane that we will fucking destroy everything in our lives to maintain our right to stay sick. Yeah, our false sense of pride. Yeah. You know, you got to eat that humble pie daily. You just have to, yeah. Like it is, yeah. it is a required feeding. Yeah. <laughs> like, if we got a problem with food, that's the one pie we need to be sure that we're yeah. Eating, you know, eat a little bit every day. Yeah. You know. So I mean, and and whatever everybody needs to know too is that it's okay to come back. You know, it's okay mm-hmm. to start over. It's okay to go back to step one. You know, I, I've seen, um, I've seen people get really comfortable with relapse and recovery. And what I mean by that is they'll come to a meeting, you know, after like, like, uh, they'll get, they'll go to treatment. And this is, this is more than one person. I've seen this either go to treatment, go to jail, go to a sober house, get 30, 60, 90 days of sobriety, get out, go to a meeting, right? Do 30 days in the meeting and relapse. They come back to the meeting after that relapse super difficult to admit they're living in that humility they're living in that embarrassment they're you know they come back they're crying they're like i fucking relapsed man i didn't think this was going to happen everybody's super sensitive to it you know they get back on the grind they do it another 30 days and they relapse they go out for a day or two come back raise their hand as a newcomer again this time the tears aren't there as much the fucking the uh the, the sincerity of, of desperation isn't there as much. They put together another three weeks or so, go back out, come back in two weeks later, easier to admit the relapse. They go back out a week later, come back in, easier to admit. Sure. You know, sure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, that, I've been there. That, yeah. that, easy, that easy relapse recovery uh, revolving door. Um, is something I think is really, really dangerous for us because yeah. now, now you're in the only place that I know of as a great solution for this thing, which is the support, the, the step work, you know, the sponsorship, the community, all those, all those pillars, you know, the service positions, all those things are available, but now you're an alcoholic that is very adapted to using and drinking within that environment. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a really dangerous place. I think the best thing to do is do it all the way the best you can right off the rip, you know, do it right off the rip. That way, uh, when you find that it does work, there's no need to relapse. But if you do relapse, right, then and, and you did all the work consistently, on a daily basis, everything that's suggested, you can come back and say, this didn't work for me, but we've never seen that happen. Right, right. We've never seen anybody go back out and give their life up 
that has worked this stuff consistently on a daily basis, day after day, year after year, insurance policy after insurance policy, giving this stuff away to the newcomer, giving this stuff away as much as we possibly can to the people that need it, uh, it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it works if you work it. And it's it's so funny because, like, we, we talked about, you know, we talked before the show, it's like, everything we're, we're talking about sounds so cliche and we want to, we want to avoid using cliches. Right. But the cliches are there for a reason. <laughs> it's it's a there, yeah. There is a reason why they say these things like don't leave until the miracle happens. Like keep coming back. You yeah. Know, it works if you work it. Like these are all things that get repeated time after time. And not only not only because they're true, but because they're things we need to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to remember that it works if I work it. Yeah. You know, because sometimes I'll I'll have those moments where I do think like, man, I'm going a little fucking crazy right now. Like, how come, you know, like I'm sober? Like, how come it's not working for me? It's like, well, am I working it? Am I, am I being of maximum service? Mm. Am I, you know, am I going to enough meetings? Am I working the program? Yeah. You know, and like something you've talked about, and I hope you don't mind me sharing. I'm pretty sure you'll be fine. Like (laughs) you've decided that you want to work, do some more step work. Right. Right. After however many years. Yeah. I think it's been six years since I've, I've personally fully worked the steps. And so it's like this, these are the, the moments that we have where we get to look at our own recovery and say, well, it works if I'm working it. Doesn't feel like it's working. Am I working it? Maybe it's time to redo the steps because I've done them with other people. Right, 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 know, right. Yeah. As they've walked through them, one of them died. Maybe I'm not doing that great. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to laugh. Yeah, we about should it, not but, laugh. But uh, yeah, it's fine. Brian was great. He, he tried it. So, but yeah, I mean, it comes to a point where, you know, the work has to be done. If you're miserable in recovery, then there's probably a reason for it because if you're not, what does Johnny always say? If you don't get happy in sobriety, you're probably not going to stay sober. If you don't get happy being sober, you're not going to stay sober. So, you know, um, working working the program as it's as it's suggested, which which for us, you know, is Alcoholics Anonymous twelve step. Work the steps. You know, we'll go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps, have a service position, and give it away. Like if you do those five things, then we we tend to stay fairly happy it's not always sunshine and rainbows because life on life's term happens mm-hmm. and we have an internal battle going on constantly with a disease that wants to fucking kill us in our minds but for the most part we run around pretty joyous and free for the most part for for the most part yeah absolutely and i, and I think that you know anybody that's found themselves uh in a relapse um, you know, my heart goes out to you. Just know that, uh, that there is a place and that there is hope and that it's all too common to tell and that, you know, your journey starts here. You know, this, this is a part of it and that, uh, and that there's no reason not to come back and talk about what's going on. It's the only way yeah. I think about the option, man. Think about the option. Like, what am I going to do? Like, if I don't, if I don't go back, what am I going to do? Continue to live this way yeah, for however many long or Fuck. die? You know what I mean? Hopefully like, sooner than later. For yeah. Me. Yeah. Fucking living that shit. So. Like, fuck. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I, 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 
you know, the whole thing, the whole topic just makes me extremely grateful that, uh, that I was able to find myself, um, back in a room after, you know, a relapse. And, uh, and if, if I can do it, you certainly yeah. can too. Yeah. I mean, because the other option is to live like Jim. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not Jim now. Jim yeah. Yeah. Then. Jim then. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and I can't wait for you guys to hear Jim's story. Um, you know, like when, when you know a little bit about Jim and just some of the incredible things that he's doing now and you hear his story, um, it's, uh, it's just, uh, you know, your classic telltale case of, of what we've come to expect, which is incredible things from people who have been through, you know, really crazy, crazy experiences. Yeah. Um, and Jim's story is no different, you know, like he, he, uh, he's got a, has got an interesting story. Yeah. Self-destructive. Yeah. Very much so. Um, as is common. But came out of it. So yeah. I, what do you think you want to, yeah. Like I can't wait because his delivery and like his, his laughter and, and smile throughout the entire story, uh, his ability to, to connect through via the camera with, you know, everybody I think is, is very inspiring and entertaining and educational as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you're going to dig it. Um, let's just, uh, let's just have Jim yeah. share his story with you. So without further ado, this is Jim's war story. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, you know, my name is Jim Hernandez. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm 44 years young, man. And uh, right now I got about two years and a couple months uh, of sober. My, my sober date is uh, February 19th, 2019. And uh, man, life is life is freaking good today. But, uh, you know, my story, I grew up in a, a little town, Ventura, California, uh, just about 60 miles north of, of, of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, uh, my story, I like to just dabble in my childhood for just a second, just because my childhood is, uh, and I, this is myself, uh, there's a lot of childhood trauma that's part of my story. And for me sharing, I've had multiple people come out and say that, you know, they've had similar things in their childhood that they believe had an influence on their addiction and, and their life, how it turned out, et cetera. So I just like to just dabble in that a second. I don't really get into war stories too much or whatever, but you know, I'm 44 years old, man. I was born in the seventies. You know, I was, we were kids in the eighties, you know, we're about the same age. Things were different back then. You know, uh, my mom had me very young. She had me when she was like 15 years old. Uh, my mom never even graduated high school. Uh, my dad was never really around. He was like 20 miles away, but, uh, my dad was, uh, he was, he was an alcoholic and he, he liked to party. So, you know, um, my dad just wasn't really around. So my mom, she always had three, three jobs, you know, as I was a kid, um, you know, I remember from eight years old, which is like third or fourth grade on, I remember going days without seeing a parent because my mom raised me by herself. And when I would wake up for school in the morning, my mom would be gone from her morning job to her morning job. I would get home from school and she would have come home in between while I was at school and changed and went to her night job. And, uh, you know, I would go to sleep, uh, while she was at her night job and I would just like, literally it was my normal, you know, all of our normals are our normals, but they're very different. But that was my normal, man. It's like an eight year old in the eighties. I would go days without seeing a, a, a parent. So, um, my mom, you know, my mom, I don't even to this day, think I've ever seen my mom drink, you know, I probably have, but obviously it's nothing that stood out to me. So I can't sit here and say, you know, I was around alcohol a lot as a kid because, you know, I was only around alcohol when I was with my dad, and that was really, really rare. I don't remember my mom drinking at all. And, uh, but, 
you know, my mom had me young. And so she, um, like most young people, you know, she wanted uh, to go out and do what young people do, which is like go out and party a little bit. And, you know, she wanted that male attention and she wanted a boyfriend for herself because that's what, you know, people have. We all want that connection and that camaraderie. Um, and my mom, in retrospect, I can look back into my childhood and realize that my mom wanted a man, not just for her, but also for me, because she knew I really wanted a father figure around in my life. And, you know, I've uh, in my you know, recovery, I've been able to sit back and, and check it out from a different perspective and realize that was a lot of what was going on. But unfortunately, you know, back in the 80s, you know, there's no IG or Facebook. You couldn't like look at somebody's page and figure out what they're all about. You know, there was not even any any Internet back then, you know, so you couldn't like do a background search on people, man. So, you know, my mom uh, just really reached out and she let a lot of un unsavory characters come around and uh, she would let boyfriends move in real quick. And I would be alone with these guys a lot because, you know, my mom worked so much. So. You know, as a young kid, and I'm talking about seven, eight, nine years old, some uh, some really god awful things happened to me that I, you know, I hope happen don't ever happen to anybody. And uh, but at that time, I thought it was normal. You know, little kids trust adults. So you know, the things that were happening to me, whether it was mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of the above, you know, I just thought it was normal at the time. So I just fucking didn't even say anything. And these guys would be like, "We gotta keep this our, our little secret." And I was like, "Okay, cool," you know. And then. Uh, you know, when I got about 13 or 14, you know, I started realizing like some of that shit was fucking wrong. Like, oh man, like, you know, whatever it is, talking to kids at school or watching something on TV, you realize that shit that, that happened to you at a young age was wrong. But at this point, you know, I'm embarrassed and I don't know how to deal with it. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed. And so I just bottle that stuff up and act like it didn't happen. So, um, you know, I didn't really, I think I, I got drunk at the first time, maybe like eighth grade off old English. And then maybe like the second or third time was like my sophomore year in high school. I didn't drink that much in like high school or college because I played sports a lot. And that was a lot of my identity then. And so I just didn't drink a lot. But when I did, man, I couldn't drink fast enough. Like just give me that hard alcohol and I would be the first one to get drunk. I'd be the first one to blackout. I'd be the first one to puke. I would always be hungover. It was just never a good thing. I'd wake up just embarrassed. The whites of my eyes just bloodshot red because I'd pop the blood vessels from alcohol poisoning. And, and this is like my sophomore or junior year, man. Every time I drank something stupid like that happened. So I should have figured that shit out then, but I didn't, <laughs> you know, but a lot of it was just because I, I, you know, I, I didn't knew that shit that happened to me and I was having a really hard time dealing with it. You know, I, uh, I was raised as an only child. So, you know, I was, and I was alone so much as a kid that I might, my social skills weren't where they, they, they should have been. And everybody thought I should, because I was a quarterback of the football team. I was always popular for whatever reason. I wasn't, you know, student body. And so everybody thought I should be popular, but I just wasn't, I wasn't comfortable in that position, you know? And so I, I drank to just to be comfortable in those positions. And so anyways, like I said, I didn't drink a lot in high school and college, but man, once college stops and uh, my identity that I had only, my, the only identity I really had growing up was an athlete was gone then it was just like, man, I was just like there with my thoughts and, and all those thoughts from all that shit. And, and I just use alcohol to numb everything, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old now, a lot of time on my hands, start working full time, but I'd never dealt with those things that happened to me as a child. All I had done for seven, eight years, once I realized they were wrong, I just pushed them away. So, you know, I'm 21, 22 and I'm severely like insecure about lots of shit. You know, my identity that I had known my whole life, people knew me by as an athlete was gone. So now I'm just like trying to figure shit out. You know, I'm acting like I got my shit together, but I was a fucking mess, man. I turned into an everyday drinker, like at 22 years old, uh, you know, uh, man, I, I, my first girlfriend was a five-year relationship. I've had three five-year relationships and they were all just toxic as shit. 
I was super codependent because, you know, all I ever saw growing up and your subconscious mind is so powerful, but all I ever saw growing up was unhealthy relationships. Like guys are treating my mom like shit. You know, my dad, when I did see him, he treated my stepmom like crap and he was just a raging alcoholic. My dad, my dad was one of those guys, man. I swore every day of my, of my teenage years, I was like, I'm never going to be like this guy. Fuck him. He's a fucking loser. Fuck that guy. And I turned out to be exactly like that motherfucker. So, you know, your subconscious mind and what you see every day, you know, really has such a huge effect on you. Like consciously, I would tell myself, I hate you. I don't ever want to be like you. I want to be the opposite of you. But my subconscious mind and what I saw every day of my life just made me be just like this guy. And it was it was uh, it was a tough pill to swallow. But, um, man, my early 20s were just everyday drinking. Um, you know, if I wasn't drinking, I was just thinking about how I was going to drink. Am I getting off work? Do I have booze at home? You know, if I, I would go out into the bars by myself every fucking night, I had a girlfriend, but we would get in so many fights. Like me and my three girlfriends that I've had in my whole life, um, you know, we all met around alcohol. Our best times were around alcohol. Our worst times were around alcohol. All of our fights were around alcohol. It was just, I was just a codependent mess. And, uh, you know, thinking back on it, you know, you know, when I was in my like late twenties and thirties and I knew I, I, I had this massive problem. I was just so insecure. And all I did was just, uh, you know, just drowned it with booze, numb my feelings with alcohol. You know, me and my girlfriends, we'd get in the worst fights. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like we would get in the worst fights, just be drunk and we would say and do the worst shit to one another. And then, you know, you wake up the next morning and you'd be like, fuck, did that really happen? And you're like, yeah, it happened. And like, then you either forgive one another or you just act like it didn't happen. <laughs> and that's just not healthy at all because now you know you got away with that. So next time you get drunk and fight, you push that shit even further and you know you just say worse things and you do worse things and and then that just turned into me self-loathing because i'd wake up in the morning and i'd just be like dude who the fuck are you to talk to somebody like that or treat somebody like that and i would just i would just self-loathe on myself man because the kind of person i was becoming i was i was only fucking drink if i was awake i was drinking i was a horrible drunk i was super mean fights all the time just saying the worst and doing the worst things and then you know for the couple minutes in the morning i was sober i would just loathe on myself because i would just be like dude who are you to treat people like that so you know that was like that was like my 20s and 30s man i, I did i had two big moves or three big moves where i moved cities you know big cities thinking if i move you know i'll get a fresh start clean slate you know new job, new people, you know, everything will be good, but we all know that's not the case. You know, it's an inside job getting, uh, getting yourself better. And, uh, man, I was just super insecure. Like all my twenties and thirties, I was super insecure. Cause I just had these demons inside me that just, that just ate at me. There wasn't a, you know, a hundred times a day I didn't go by and just think about the things that these guys did to me when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm just embarrassed and I just don't know how to deal with it. I never, you know, just never went to counsel, never even thought about that. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to love myself because I hate myself. So I'm thinking, though, if I get this girl, if I have sex with this girl or if I pull this girl, I'll, you know, that'll validate me. And I'll love myself because I did that. Or if I go to the gym and I work out and get myself to look this way or look that way, or if I get this car, if I buy this house, you know, I'm using everything exterior trying to make myself love myself. And we all know that's an inside job. So that was just a horrible fucking cycle that I was just putting myself through. It was just absolutely horrendous. And uh you know, just cut to the chase. Like my life just spouted out of control. I lost a house. I lost all my friends and family. Um, the little bit of family and people that talked to me, I left, I they were in LA and I lived in San Diego at the time. I was like, all right, I'm gonna go back to LA, be close to my family, you know, help my family out. Like 
I'm no fucking help to anybody. I'm just a mess. I'm an everyday drinker. I'm now a 24 seven drinker. I'm like, literally if I wake up in the morning, I got to grab that cup next to the side of the bed or the couch, or wherever I passed out that has a little bit of liquor left in it. And I got to chug that just so my, you know, my shaky hands go away and I can just even walk. My legs were just not even work. And it was just absolutely embarrassing. And so I'm like, now I'm just drinking to live and survive, man. It's like, you know, being a social drinker left like a long time ago. I turned into an everyday drinker. <laughs> I bought this house in this town called Temecula. And, and I, I can look back and laugh at some things, but I drank, I would always drink Sky Vodka and Corona. And Sky Vodka, you know, the big blue bottles. I'd buy the big handle, the big handle of vodka. And I would drink a whole handle of vodka, 18 pack and half a bottle of Fireball a night. And I would be terrified to open my garage door because my neighbors would see the fucking 30 bottles of Sky Vodka in my garage and like the 19 empty cases of beer and Fireball. I was like literally embarrassed to open my garage door because that stuff was all sitting in there. It was, I would sneak it into my car and then go take it to Recycle Center, man. It was just, it was bad. Like everybody knew but me. Like I knew, but you know, I was just, I was, I was an absolute mess. And I came to... I came to Los Angeles, man. I came to Los Angeles in uh, 2013. And that's when it just, the rails just fell off. You know, I, that's where I got introduced to, to cocaine. I never really did drugs. Like my story is like 99% alcohol, but uh, moved to LA, man. That LA lifestyle just sucked me in fucking quick. I was bartending, uh, making lots of money, but I wasn't saving shit. So when I first moved to LA, I was living out of my car, my SUV. And then I got an apartment for a couple months and I couldn't pay rent. And I, I just wouldn't pay rent. I was making like four or 500 bucks a night in 2013, 14, just in tips, you know, if not more, but I was just spending it all on alcohol and drugs on just that fucking life, man, that lifestyle. Like it was crazy. And so I lost my apartment and I was living out of my SUV. And I remember, man, I, I, I thought I had it together. I was bartending, thought I was the shit, just drinking and doing Coke all day, every day. I would, I worked out at Gold's gym where I showered because I didn't have an apartment. I showered at the gym. So I got, I remember I had bought on Groupon or something, a membership to Gold's gym, like a one-year membership, Gold's gym business. And I'd go work out there and I would shower there. And I'd walk out to my SUV and I'd throw my gym bag in the SUV and I'd grab the big Gatorade bottle that was half vodka. And I would just walk down to Venice Beach and I would just get fucking blacked out drunk every day at the basketball courts in Venice. And, uh, I'd walk back to my car and find, you know, I'd find somebody to do a couple lines with and, and do some stupid shit with. And I would take a couple hours nap and I'd go bartend that night and just do it all over again. And then, uh, then uh, I got fired from my job and my car got repossessed pretty much like at the same exact time, man. So this fucking guy that was, <laughs> thought he had his shit together because he was living out of his car, showering at Gold's Gym, now lost his job and his SUV. So it was just like, then I'm completely homeless in, in Venice Beach, man. And, uh, it was crazy. I had uh, got a little tiny storage unit that I had, you know, got on Groupon also. Groupon used to be my shit back in the day. And I I bought a year membership to that, too, for the storage unit. It was a tiny little one, like the size of a closet. And so I remember I would just have, like, just the, the 25 articles of clothing that I owned in there. And sometimes I'd try to sleep in that storage unit, but they usually know because it's all monitored and, like, with surveillance and shit. They would kick me out. But, uh, man, I'm homeless in, in Venice Beach. Start getting arrested a lot. You start getting 51 50 all the time, man. I'm getting in fights. I'm getting mugged. I'm mugging people. You know, when I was at homeless in Venice, man, I still, I don't know how, I still have pride, you know? I never got to, I never bought a tent. I never lived in a tent because that meant I was homeless in my mind. Like, we're fucking sick fuckers. Like, I'm literally homeless, but I didn't buy a tent, so I wasn't homeless homeless. 
But uh, I remember I would sneak up onto people's uh, patios and steal their cushions off the patio furniture. And I would take in, I'd find a little cut somewhere, man. I would sleep on that so it was comfortable. I'd sneak on the boats in Marina Del Rey. You know, I, I was in the marina a lot. And so I'd figure out like the, the routine to what boats were empty. I'd get to know the locals and, you know, I would sneak on the boats and stuff. But man, my life, you know, I, I, I laughed and my life was just out of control and I was lost. I was seriously lost. Like I really didn't care if I was alive anymore. I started getting 5150, my anxiety was just starting to go through the fucking roof. Like I never knew what anxiety was really was till, you know, it absolutely just fucking froze me. And I was just paralyzed by it in like my late thirties. And uh, you know, how I dealt with anxiety was just drugs and alcohol. And uh, man, I'm starting to go to jail a lot. Cause I'm getting caught up and doing some stupid shit. Um, and uh, <laughs> I got 5153 times in, uh, in, in nine months. And uh, I think a lot of us, maybe it's, maybe do you know what that is? Maybe you don't, but it's when you, you go to a psych ward, you do something like usually if you say you're suicidal to a cop or in a hospital, they'll, they'll take you to a psych ward for 72 hours. But uh, you know, <laughs> the, the one I love to tell about that I laugh at is I was in South central LA and a friend was letting me stay on their couch for a while. And I was just, drunk the whole time so finally he came home one night he's like dude he's like man i'm trying to help you but you don't even want to help yourself he's like dude you need to get the fuck out like just bye like i'm you're just like death you're just like skin and fucking bones like who are you and he kicked me out and it was like a thursday or friday night in south central la which is not a good neighborhood and i'm just wasted walking the streets just getting in fights man and i remember i walked up to this wrong the in front of this wrong house they had a bunch of a bunch of guys on the patio drinking and partying and i started running my mouth talking shit <laughs> and they all started chasing me, man. They're chasing me through fucking alleys and down the street in South Central. I remember I jumped in a fucking bush and I called 911 on myself. Like, cause I was gonna die. Like, I was literally gonna fucking die. Like, I had like five dudes chasing me in South Central. So I literally called 911 on myself, man. And uh, a couple minutes later, my phone rang and it was dispatch. And they're like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm over here on like Normandy and 54th. And they're like, the cops are out there looking for you. I'm like, I'm in a fucking bush. <laughs> Come find me. And uh, anyways, I got out of the bush and I found the cops and they fucking put me in a straight jacket right away. Boom. Straight jacketed me up and took me into a 72 uh, hour hold, man. Another 5150. But uh, so anyways, man, uh, what happened? Like. Remember, I had an appointment with my uh, my probation officer and uh, at LAX, uh, LAX courthouse, and uh, I walked in there, and I, I probably hadn't showered in like a week, and and uh, you know I didn't realize it because you can't smell yourself. But uh, my probation officer looked at me, and she's like, "Dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you stink. You look like fucking death. Like, who are you?" And I was just like, "Wow, okay." And I don't know what it was, but that was the first time ever in my life I told somebody like, "Man." I don't, I don't know. Like I need help. Like for the first time ever, my little, little lady probation officer, I was like, dude, I need help. Like, I honestly don't care if I'm alive tomorrow. Like I really don't care. Like I, I need help. Like I don't know how to live life on life's terms anymore. And, uh, she hooked me up with a place called homeless healthcare of LA made me an appointment to go over there. So I went down there like the day or two days later and they hooked me up with a, a, a bed in a, in a program, a transitional rehab facility. You know, when, I didn't, I didn't know programs existed. Lots of people don't even know what programs are, but a program, a government funded program is something for people off the streets or out of uh, getting men and women getting out of prison. And they help transition you back into hopefully being a productive member of society, you know, because obviously if you've become homeless, you've, you've lost any skill to, to manage money or, or pay bills or have responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. If you're in prison, man, being institutionalized is a real fucking thing. Like, you know, like, you know, it, that's, that's real. Like, 
And so programs are government funded things. So, you know, you know, I just never thought I could get help because I didn't have money and I didn't have insurance. I didn't think I can get into one of these. I thought it was just bougie rehab centers that I, I knew I couldn't get into. But they got me into this place in Venice Beach and uh, it was a, a 53-man facility. It was just like L.A. County Jail, man. It was like L.A. County Jail West. You know, just right on the fucking beach. And the same people, you know, the, the first day I walked in there, you know, all the Mexicans were hanging out over here in the corner uh, you know, just fucking talking war stories. All the blacks are over here playing dominoes and cards and shit. All the old white dudes are over here just being fucking angry and people are fighting over TVs over here. And it was just like being in county, but it was a treatment center. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know what it was. I walked in that facility and I just said, I knew I was going to be there for six months. And I just said, you know what, Jim? Like, you fucking suck at life. If you're going to be here, you're just going to give it your all. And you're going to do what, what the fuck you're told. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of recovery going on. There's lots of drugs in that facility. There's lots of weapons, lots of fights, like just lots of just, it was, it was just fucking county jail. But, um, it was, if, if you wanted it, it was there for you. There was counselors there and there was a program. So I just, you know, I did whatever any of my counselors told me, man. I just, I, I fucking, you know, the most important thing I did was I found God. I found my higher power again, you know, and for, I don't know what it was, but I became humble in that place. I just did whatever I was told, you know, I journaled every fucking day. I still have my journal. It's right here. This is my journal from rehab. The bindings broke off at the front and back, but I have all the dates, man. I go back and I read this thing and I can put myself back in that spot and I can read that. And I can remember how I felt that day. And when I was writing, when I was writing and, and that keeps me sober today, man, going through all my journals that I have. And, you know, I, I, I dug into the big book, man. I read the first 163 and I was like, fuck man, there's people out there that, that fucking are telling my story. Like, Whoa, I didn't think, you know, I thought this was just me. You know, I thought this obsession with alcohol, like all I did was live to drink. That was it. If I wasn't drinking, how am I going to get my next drink? What am I, who am I going to score? Where am I going to eat? Out of this trash can? Like, where am I going to get my next bottle? Like, I was just obsessed with just drugs and alcohol. And when I realized that there, there is a way to get out of this and, and this was it, I just, I jumped in, man. There was a gym on the bottom floor, a little racket ass gym. I was just down there. You know, my whole life, I'd always scream, like, mind, body, soul, mind, body, soul, you know, my active addiction. And uh, I thought it was funny and cool, and I had no idea what those three things together meant until I got sober. And I, I found my higher power, and I started working a program, and I started working out, and I started, you know, filling my tool belt. And I started, you know, going to groups five times a day and just – and uh, the game changer for me, man, hands down, like, hands down, the game changer for me was when I went to mental health therapy. And uh, and I, I confessed to my, my counselors – I you know, I, I went to more counseling and therapy than I was supposed to. I just, anytime I can get in, I went in there and admitting to another human being, those things that happened to me as a kid and just crying that ugly cry, man. It was just the most freeing feeling ever. Like it, I had never cried that, that cry before in my life, but it was the most freeing feeling. And that's where I started getting my life back is when I started doing that. So, you know, in these, in these rooms of, the, of this treatment center, you know, I just did everything I was told and I surrendered and, uh, you know, uh, just through the grace of God and, and this recovery and program, uh, you know, I got my life back. And, and you know, my life today is, is amazing. I'm not going to sit here and act like it's perfect. I relapsed after I got to about a year, first time. But when I relapsed after I got out of treatment, I knew how much I had loved myself then. So I was in about a two-year relapse at one point, and I had lost two jobs. I got an apartment in downtown L.A., and I lost two jobs, and I, was, I got an eviction notice on my door. And I remember, and I had hit it for my roommate. My roommate had paid me rent for two months, but I just used it on drugs and alcohol. And uh, we got an eviction notice on a door, and I had to fucking uh, just stop. I was, I was just like, okay, you got to stop. Like, 
when I got sober the first time, I knew I loved myself, man. For the first time in my life, I love myself. And even though I'm in a relapse, like you don't forget that stuff, man. I didn't forget how I felt. I didn't forget how good I felt. I didn't forget, you know, the way people looked at me and actually respected me for the first time. And people like wanted to be around me. And I, I didn't forget any of that. I didn't forget my higher power. I just, this, this disease wants us dead, you know? And my relapse is a lot because I lost connection with the recovery community. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped hanging out with people in recovery. You know, I, I, for a second, honestly, I, I thought I had a handle. I thought I had it and I could, I could live life on my terms now and not, on my higher powers, you know, it was my will was going to get me through and not God's will. So I pulled myself out of that, of that relapse somehow, man, I just, by the grace of God, I, I did it. And I just fucking rededicated my, my life to, uh, to recovery and to, to my higher power of God. And life today is just, it's, it's a blessing. I'm blessed beyond my wildest dreams, man. I can't, you know, I, I can't even like, I can't even explain how good my life is. My life is better today than I ever thought possible. When I say ever thought possible, I'm not just talking about when I got sober. I thought, okay, you know, hopefully my life can get this good. I'm talking about like when I was like 22, 23, 24, and I didn't think I had an issue. I thought I was a normie and I pictured my life like amazing, like this way, boom, boom, boom. My life's better today than that dream back then was. And I might not have the worldly possessions and shit that, you know, I wanted back then with like all the cars and the house and the wife, like, but I love myself for the first time ever. Like I love myself and I can look myself in the mirror and I'm okay with that person that's staring back at me. And that is invaluable. I have a relationship with my higher power that, that, you know, I drop to my knees every day. And, and the things that, you know, I always thought I had the worst luck in addiction, active addiction. I had the worst luck, you know, nothing was our fault. We just had a bad the worst luck. You know, you want good luck, fuck around and get 90 days sober. Fuck around and get six months. Fuck around and get a year, two years. Your luck's going to change. Like, you're all of a sudden going to have some good-ass luck because, you know, people see you doing things and you do things and your confidence comes back and you're, you're, doing, you're just doing the right thing. Things find you, man. Like, people in recovery in these, in these rooms and, and, you know, on the IG community, I've got this camaraderie and fellowship and this connection with people that I never thought humanly possible. And it's real. Like, you want some good luck because you think you've always had bad luck? fuck around and get a year sober and then get two years sober and then just say that path and be of service to other people and do things for others, not expecting a thing back. And your luck's going to change real damn quick. I'm telling you that right now. So, um, you know, I'm going to end with this. Like I haven't had, I got a DUI in 2015 and I haven't had a driver's license or a car since 2015 when my car got repossessed. And I was always told by my, my public defender, like, hey, yeah, when you finally come back and face this, man, you're going to have to spend a little bit of time inside before you can get your license. And so, you know, I never did that because I have two businesses now and I, I couldn't afford to be inside for an extended amount of time. And so I just ignored it. And I was like, well, I have to wait till I get a business partner or something that can hold down the, the business for me. But uh, like I called and I, I finally just last week, last week I called and I put myself on the books for court. And I was like, All right, I'm called DMV call the DMV and see what I need to do to go to get started getting my, my license back. And so call the DMV and I was like, Hey, my name is so-and-so, you know, I got this DUI in 2015. I ignored, like, I just need to know what I need to do to start getting my license back. Like, do I need to, you know, file, get SR 22 insurance sign for DUI classes? Like, what do I need to do? And the lady's like, no, you just need to come in and get pay this reinstatement fee and your license is good. And I was like, no, no, you like, you no, you didn't hear me. Like I had a DUI in 2015. It's 2021. <laughs> that I just ignored like, what do I need to do? Like, do I need to get an interlock? Do I need to go to like seven months? Like, 
you know, what and she's like, no, like it, it's forgiven. Like that was, you, you're good. Like just come in and pay this reinstatement fee. I thought she was fucking with me. And so I go to the DMV and I'm like looking around thinking the cops are going to hop out and arrest me. And it was like a fucking, you know, prank thing. And I go to the DMV, man, and they gave my fucking license back. This is just last Thursday. And I was like, what? I have a license, no breathalyzer on my car, no DUI classes. Like I still got to go to court. So I still might spend a little bit of time. But I went out and I bought a car on Sunday. I haven't had a car in six years, man. I live in downtown LA and I've used public transportation as a 44-year-old man. I've just been using public transportation, but living in downtown LA, that's not a big deal because everybody does it. But uh, man, I got my license back. That's God in recovery, man. I, th- I thought I was going to go to jail for six months minimum, and I still might. But I got my license and I'm driving around right now, man. And it's like, I'm, I'm telling you, man, you want to change your luck and, and just experience the true miracles and joys of life. Like if you're an addict like me and you have this disease of addiction, which everybody doesn't, God bless, but get sober, man. Fucking miracles will happen. And you know, everything you've dreamed of is possible. It's out there for you. Like everything I've dreamt of, it's not too late. Like I'm just doing shit. I challenge myself. I make a plan every day. I pray every day. I make a plan and I go out and I attack that plan. And, and man, I'm, I'm just blessed beyond my wildest dreams. And, and I got cotton mouth right now. I'm talking somewhere. So I'm going to shut the fuck up. You know, my businesses, I, I started two businesses that are dedicated to aiding and inspiring and helping people in addiction recovery. One was my, my fitness clothing line. You know, I started Valor Fitness Clothing, which is on IG. That's the, the IG handle is Valor Fitness Clothing. And I have uh, at Valor Fitness Clothing Women. And with that, man, I donate one item of clothing uh, to homeless shelters or to uh, transitional rehab facilities for every item purchased. And and literally the last two years, I've I've served over a thousand meals in Skid Row and the homeless communities, and I've and I've passed out over four thousand items of clothing. You know, I'm I'm in I'm in Skid Row in, in Los Angeles often. I've been blessed with some people that have helped me out in Denver and Phoenix and in the East Coast, and we've done outreaches. And uh, you know, I have this business that people are behind and support me, and it's only because of recovery. And I just I just started this nonprofit called Valor Rising, and we're going to go into treatment centers that are uh, government-funded treatment centers and facilities. And you know, I go in and I do H and I panels in there. And, my, and the purpose of this is is uh, is to connect with men and women that are in these facilities and have them come out and do sober active events with us and workouts. And so when they get out of treatment, they'll have a community to be part of. You know, they'll they'll be established to something because what people don't understand, especially normies, is like when you go, you know. People think rehab and treatment, and they think you get out and like, oh, you go back to your husband or wife or your support system, your family loves you. Nah, not the kind of people like me, man. We, we, we don't have anything to go back to. So if you don't have anything to go back to, your chances of continued sobriety or recovery are, are slim to none. So my nonprofit, we go into these facilities while these men and women are still in there. We run meetings, and I do workouts in there. I bring instructors, and then I do workouts all over L.A., and I have them come to our outdoor workouts so they can meet other people that are in flourishing in recovery so when they get out of treatment they're already connected to a community of people and they have people that they can go to and lean on and it's like you know our facilities that we're opening are going to be like boys and girls clubs for acts and recovery you can come in and get a workout all of our all of our workouts are followed by naa meetings you know so they can come and escape for a little bit you know pick up a you know a, a part-time job i can help them with that and start helping them with housing so my nonprofit has been such a blessing it's new but it's really gaining a lot of traction and uh, it's it's like i said it's it's Ballard Rising. It's IG handles BFC Rising. But you know, thank you for letting me share that, dude. Dude, yes, Jim, that was awesome. So it's it's clear that Valor is doing some pretty amazing yeah. things, man. Yeah, like I, I get really excited, uh, you know, hearing about some of the things that he's involved with, and when you hear his story, his delivery, yeah, his delivery. I mean, 
everything. It's like it's it's pretty crazy to think, you know, how far how far he's come. Yeah, you know, like fast motherfucker was hiding in a bush. (laughs) It's and it's funny because when he was telling that story, I was like a little bit jealous that he got to do that. I never got to run around South Central getting chased by gangsters. (laughs) There's that there's that disease. There's yeah. that addict popping yeah. up. And man. he's probably like, yeah, you don't want that shit happening. Yeah, that sounds you know? scary as hell. I mean, real life-threatening situations, you know. And, you know, for, for him just going through all the shit he went through, mm-hmm. um, I love that he's able to, you know, articulate the fact that, you know, it, you know, the way that he brings up the subconscious mind and how he's so hated the way that his dad was and like, he's just like, I don't want to be this motherfucker at all. And then he became that, you know, like, like we become the things that we think about. And so it's probably a good idea to think about you being a successful person, you know, and I think that's part of what he did is, is he gained a vision for himself, you know, but you know, going through the motions of becoming an alcoholic and a daily drinker. I love that his idea was to go home and help his family. He's like, I'm just going to go back to L.A. and help my family. He's like, fuck, I can't. can't help can't, myself. Can't help shit. Yeah. You know? And, like, there's so many bottoms in his story that, yeah. that I can recognize. You know, I can recognize that same, you know, being being on the couch and your buddy being like, dude, you're fucked. Yeah. You, yeah. You're fucked. And, and actually, you know, like that's a real thing. Like Dustin, you know, my, they, they, my, my buddy that gives me all my tattoos that I grew up with, we had an apartment together and he was giving me rent money. <laughs> I was paying the rent. I was like, yeah. And, and when we got evicted, he was like, what the fuck, bro? And I was like, oh, sorry, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. And, that, like it that is, same thing. Yeah, it does not pay to be our friend. Like, we're, <laughs> we're actively using Fuck. it, man. Like, there's nobody safe. And I, you know, I did some similar stuff, too. Like, I, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like I almost did that exact same thing. I just wasn't as open, and the, and the consequences weren't as drastic. Not for me anyways. But um, one thing I really appreciated, and, and, and again, I'll thank you for this, Jim, directly, is that um, the fact that you were able to open up a little bit about your abuse as, as a child, um, because I know that that stuff isn't easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he, he had, you know, a mother who, who brought some individuals in, um, and he experienced, you know, every level of abuse during that time. And, um, and some of that stuff's not easy to talk about, but he's willing to talk about it because he knows that it's a part of his story mm-hmm. and he knows that, you know, it, it definitely played a part in why he was using and drinking. Yeah. And so it's good. I think it's so important to have people, especially, especially when we see people like Jim, who, um, you know, appears to be, you know, a macho man, um, you know, very masculine male, um, open up about some of that abuse, because Mm -hmm. I think that it's important that everybody knows that, Abuse, much like addiction, does not discriminate, right? Right. And and it's important that we address this stuff in order for us to have a better understanding of the disease within ourselves, which is what he did with therapy. Yep. You know, and and, and, it, and it took him a long time to get to a point where he was comfortable with that. You mm-hmm. know, but once he did, like it was, 
so freeing. Yeah, he said he ugly cried, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Do you ugly cry? I have. Like, I'll, I'll never forget my ugly cry. It was a beautiful moment with me and Avery, and I just fucking fell apart. I, I, all, all the tears that I had held back my entire life throughout so many moments, you know, I just laid in her lap and fucking just cried. I'll never forget it. We were coming back from, from, uh, from Utah, from Salt Lake, and I just got hit with, with it all, man. And I was driving. I had to pull over on the side of the road, and I just laid in her lap, and I fucking... Wow. I just cried, and she was soaked, and I was emptied out. Yeah. Yeah. It was much needed. Yeah, it was freeing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was something that I needed, and so I, I, I know what he's talking about when you finally let that go. Yeah. When, because you're not, you know, that ugly cry isn't a place of blame. It's not a place of shame. You know, it's not, you're not fighting the world. It's, it's like a place of surrender. You know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm defeated. Yeah. And, and this is probably a good place to start over. Yeah. No holding back. Yeah. Yeah. Very cleansing. What about you? I, well, here's the thing is like, I honestly feel like, this this seems to happen in most of us who have a habit or a knack of holding feelings back, right? Um, and what I mean by that is is I was somebody who generally was not afraid to cry. You know, um, I definitely had emotional moments and moments where I uh, was I would cry. I don't know if I've ever, you know, cried um, that ugly cry to that extent, but I feel like I've relieved those same emotions, you know, intravenously. Does that make sense? Intravenously. Intravenously. Intermittently. Intermittently. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. I don't think think I actually injected it into my veins. (laughs) I do know the meaning of that word. Yeah. But no, like, but what I, but what I mean is that, you know, like I was somebody who would cry often, I guess. Yeah. So, and I did cry often, especially in those early days yeah. of recovery, because you just don't know what's what, you know, like no. you don't know how to feel. And when you do, it's like so mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? What is yeah. this that I'm feeling? You know? Um, so I, yeah, I appreciate, I, I appreciate any time that we're able to sort of just break the stigma and talk about yeah. you know, some of these things openly. And so thank you for that. Yeah. Um, thanks, Jim. Your delivery was the shit. Like the story was very engaging and there's a lot in there that I could relate with. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are going to relate with that too. Yeah. Um, can't wait to see more of you, man. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Well, what do you think, pal? I need to get out of here. Got yeah. stuff to do. Oh, more important than this? No. Okay. That's why I'm here now. <laughs> After this. Do we give your love to my mom, please? I mean, give my love to your give, mom. Yeah, of course. Absolutely, man. My mom's a mama. Big part of the show. Yeah, big we supporter love, of the show. We love you, Susie. So, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> you can give You can give your love to my mom as well. Okay. If you want. Got yeah. it. I Got appreciate it. it. Give all of our love to everyone that's listening, tuning in, watching. Yeah. And while we're at it, we'll give some love to Jordan. Jordan, as always, back there, just grinding away. Like, you guys would not believe how busy he is during the shoot. Just running back and forth, up and down, wide awake. 
making suggestions, getting right. stuff, doing all kinds of things. Like right now, he's picking um, dust off the desk. So, which is which you know shows his attention to detail. <laughs> Thank you, Rylan. Rylan, awesome. as Thank always. You. Thank you, my over friend. Over there, pushing oh. the button. Way to push the buttons. Yeah, Ryan pushes the buttons. Thanks, everybody, for pushing our buttons. And uh, don't forget to push that like button. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> That's a proper segue. I got to go. Let's yeah. get out of here. What do you say? Let's do it, my friend. And remember, okay. guys, you are worth the work. We will see you on the other side. Have a good day. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.